I have had the opportunity, or whatever, to personally see and hear Pope uh, Pius Twelfth in the Costal Gandolfo Courtyard. I've told you about that back in 1954 with Richard David Armstrong. Then again with Raymond Munner, he and I were in St. Peter's in the press box in 1960 when Pope John XXIII, the Pope of Love, was carried around and worshipped like a god. And then again... Uh, my wife and I were there under Pope uh, uh, John Paul II, I guess, about five years ago, where he was sitting under this arcade or this uh, awning up near in front of the building, and then this time by a fourth pope. So I was telling some of the young ladies in the office, I've outlived three of them. I intend to outlive the next one, too. <laughs> I don't mean to be bragging. I'm kidding. But maybe I'll outlive them all. I've already outlived three of those those guys. But who knows what will happen at the time of the end. We're tiny, and we're very weak. We don't have the capacity that many of those people have. Of course, these big churches have people with very high IQs, all kinds of DDs and LLDs and PhDs and all the other Ds after their name. Brilliant men, capable men and women, but they're not called of God. And so we're not better than they are. It's just that they have not yet been called of God. But as I got to thinking there in Rome, these are human beings. We don't want to say, watch out for them. They're all human beings made in God's image. And I was telling Doug Winnell and my wife, I said, we've got to figure out how to reach these people. We need to help these people. They're fellow human beings. Boy, are they blind. Absolutely blind. But we want to try to help them and should try to help them in every way we possibly can in years to come. So it is interesting. As we were there in St. Peter's walking around, as I've seen before, every now and then again you go by these little side uh, alcoves where they have flickering candles and they'll have a statue and, and candles and a statue of St. Anne or, or St. Bartholomew or St. Teresa or some Catholic saint. And these people, generally women, will be bowing down in this because women are more sentimental and they're more sincere. Men often have the other sin. They don't think they need God, so they go either direction. But these women will generally be there, and they'll be praying to this flickering candle and this saint. And they'll get up and turn, often with tears coming down their eyes. They've been praying their heart out to this piece of rock. And they're sincere. They're really sincere. You can tell it. Very sincere. And brethren, I had a grandmother that helped me very much, and she used to pray over and over that, that her, uh, either her one of her sons or her only grandson, and I was her only grandson, would somehow be a minister. And I think she was very sincere, and perhaps God heard that prayer because my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, did get to be a minister primarily for writing. He wrote the correspondence course, but was very dedicated, and I got to be a minister and she was very sincere, but God never called her. She never really understood. I think many men like Billy Graham in the Protestant world seem to be very sincere. They're very sincere, brethren. You've heard me tell before how Dr. Hay and Mr. John Halford and others who worked with the people in Thailand and our Thai project would come back and sometimes say that the Thai Buddhists were some of the most kind, gentle, loving people they had ever known in all their lives, including the Church of God. A lot of them were very sincere, no doubt. But we have to realize that that's not enough. I want to ask you this afternoon, what is it, what is the key thing, perhaps, there are many things, but what is a key thing that I want to focus on 
that separates between God's true people and other sincere good people. I know we've had a lady in Ambassador College faculty years ago. It was a lovely lady, very cultured, very nice. She had more culture. She had more kindness than many of us in the church. Was she just as good as we are? Yes. Yes, she was. But is she going to be in God's kingdom? No, she will not be in the first resurrection. And I've known of God's people in the church who were very nice people and very sincere people who may not be in the first resurrection. Some of you perhaps would fit that category. I'm not your judge. God is. But Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to look around after being in the headquarters church for decades and said, I don't think even half of you people are really converted. How dare he say that? Partly because of the thing I'm going to preach about today. It's a very important thing. It seems simplistic, but I really think that all of you and all you brethren around the world who may hear this later have to think about, must think about deeply and profoundly. It's a very key issue. We need to understand many of the church of God are fringers. They're not really in the church of God all the way. They have their own opinions. They always want to argue or they want to change this or do something different over here and over there. There may be sincere. Are they going to be in the first resurrection? I'm not their judge. Maybe they will. Will they have a high position in God's kingdom? No, they won't. I will say that. I will say that. And when I'm through, I hope you understand. Maybe they'll be doorkeepers. Maybe God will have a whole bunch of doorkeepers. I don't know. But these people who are fringers, some of these people in the church of God today, because of the confusion arising after Mr. Armstrong's death, they won't commit to go to any particular church. We call them floaters. And they float here and they float there. And they have their own ideas and so on. And they don't commit. And they will not serve regularly in the church. They won't tithe or won't tithe regularly or fully at all. They have ways and excuses to get around giving to God and doing what God said. And, of course, they will not get fully involved in the work of God and their prayers and their whole life. They just float here, and they're sort of on the fringes. So they don't fully give their lives to God in that way. Think about it, brethren. Please think about that, because some of you have that tendency, I know. And perhaps many of your friends and people you know in other churches have that tendency. Are these the people that are the true saints of God Almighty? Are these the people that are going to be given authority over kings, as kings, over cities, and over nations? And maybe over entire planets later on? Are these the kind of people God will use to do that? We need to think about it. Turn to 2 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 13 and verse 5. You say, oh, well, this is a Passover scripture. No, this is a scripture in the Bible. We use it all through the year. (laughs) We use it all through the year. Verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? That, of course, is part of the answer to the question. Christ must be in you. And when you understand it, He must be fully in you. I don't mean perfectly every hour of every day and everything, but obviously overwhelmingly Christ must be living in you, and that's part of it. The key, my brethren, to understanding what I'm saying What's the difference 
between the true saints, the real saints of God, and good people. Really nice people, many of them. Good people who have more culture, more ability. They may be more kind outwardly. They've been taught how to act and how to do. And they're nice people. Many of them are sincere people. What's the difference between the true saints of God and these people? The key difference. Of course, part of it is the fact that Christ must fully live in us and He is not fully living in them. But the key is to really understand our calling. Get this, and you note-takers, please put this in your notes. The key is to really understand our calling. Why are we called? What is the purpose of our calling? As we saw above, Christ must live fully in us. But also, part of our calling, and the basic reason for our calling, is that we must be preparing to be kings and a coming government of God throughout the next 1,100 years on this earth and later on perhaps throughout all eternity. That is our calling. That's why God has opened our minds now. Mr. Armstrong said God could have called us later if it's just a matter of personal salvation. He called us now to help do His work, to get His message around the world, and also to prepare us now to be the kings and priests in a coming government, a literal government to be set up on this earth. And so we've got to understand that. And we've got to realize that each of you, each of us, must prove to ourselves that there is a very real God, a powerful, wonderful spirit personality who is the creator of all and the governor of the universe and will be our spiritual father if we'll let him. And then we must prove that the Bible is really inspired, that he inspired the Bible. The Bible is God-breathed. The Bible is under assault right now, as you know, because of this book out, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. The movie's soon coming out. Then we have a whole series of other books that are coming out, even written by the leader of the theology department right here in, in North Carolina, in the university here, and one up in Chapel Hill. Terrible things are being said about the Bible and about Christ. A whole series of books. My wife was looking at Costco, I guess it was, or it was at Walmart the other day, and she saw there were five or six books like that, all questioning the Bible. A whole slew of them are coming out. You know, Dan Brown uh, follow-throughs, let's say, trying to put down the authority of the Bible. And people are being affected by that. And they will be affected by that. Some of you may be affected by that if you're not careful. You've got to prove that there is a real personal God. And that the Bible, this book, was originally, of course we know the little tiny errors in translation or typographical errors or whatever, but is the inspired Word of God. It was originally given. And frankly, very few errors. All the top scholars agree that as far as the difference between one translation and another is just minuscule as far as any doctrine is concerned, less than one-half of one percent. So you've got to understand that and understand and really live by Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy, again, is a scripture we all know, but let's turn there. Second Timothy chapter 3, and here Paul is writing to the young evangelist Timothy, he said in verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'm just giving you some background in the passage here. All of us in God's true church will suffer persecution. It's not supposed to be easy. But evil men and impostors, evil men are going to upset people, turn them aside, pretend to be true teachers of the Bible, and they're not. Impostors, 
will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what they're doing right now. But as you know, continue, uh, as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have received them. And that from childhood, here's Timothy grew up as a young Jew, and the only scriptures he had were what we call the Old Testament. Very clear. That's all he had. From childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures over and over again. The New Testament validates, you know, the Old Testament as the Word of God. Christ did. Here Paul does. Many times the New Testament shows the Old Testament also was definitely the Word of God. The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, certainly including the New Testament, And we've had articles and sermons showing how God preserved the Bible and how actually he signed his name in it in so many different ways, including the fact there are 49 books, 22 books as the Jews put them together and counted them officially in the Old Testament because they counted 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, I think it is, as one book and so on. And so other books were made together as used and regarded as one book. And it came out 22 in their official count long before the New Testament was written. They didn't try to do that to make that come out right. They've never tried to make the New Testament come out right. You know that, the Jews. But then the New Testament comes along with 27 books. What's 22 and 27? 49. Seven times seven. The perfect number times the perfect number. And you cannot add in there the Gospel of Judas. You can't out-add in there the apocryphal gospels and all this other rubbish that's coming out today. It does not fit. And the way these other books are written, if you really have studied the Bible for hundreds of hours or thousands of hours, as some of us have done, you can see it's not the same mind. It's not the same approach. It's not the same approach, the same mind, the same way of talking in the books at all. It's a different mind, a different spirit, obviously. The Bible was inspired of the great God, and you need to prove that and know that and be willing to live by that. All Scripture is God-breathed, as it is here in the original Greek, came right out from God. God God-breathed. I've got to teach that, and I've got to live by that, and I've got to die by that. And I intend to die by that if I have to. I proved it to myself. I hope you can. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, For correction, the Bible should correct us. We should let it correct us or be corrected by it, even through a minister or teacher of God who teaches his principles and truths that correct us based on the Bible. For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. No, you don't need the Book of Mormon to add to the Bible. No, you don't need the writings of Ellen G. White to add to the Bible. No, you don't need all these apocryphal books. The Bible, the Scriptures inspired by God is complete. And that's all we need and that's all God gave us and that's all we're supposed to live by. And then as you know it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word, not watering it down, not making excuses, not omitting this and that. Say, well, Paul said women shouldn't preach. But that was his opinion. That was just the age he lived in. Oh, is that so? Well, Jesus was a Jew. So, well, he kept the Sabbath because that's what the other Jews did, but we don't have to today. 
Well, the Ten Commandments were there for carnal people. They needed this. Okay, you can go on and on and you can rip out every page of the Bible if you use that kind of reasoning. Every page of the Bible can be ripped right out with that approach, brethren. So we need to understand and have the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Live by every word of God, Jesus said. Turn to Luke chapter 14 now, and here we see what the Son of God said also, a very basic and yet tremendously important principle here that's brought out. And I want to cover this again, as I've often done, but we need to really think about this and learn to do it. Luke 14, verse 25, Great multitudes came with Christ, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate or love less his father, it's a comparative term, the commentaries tell us in the Greek, love less by comparison, not hate as you would hate somebody or want to kill them, but love less his own father and his mother and his wife, his children, brothers and sisters. Yes, in his own life also, to love it less than he loves the great God who gave him life and gave him breath in the first place. To say, God, I'm nothing and you're everything. I worship you. You're ahead of me. I know you're greater than I am and have that feeling. You've got to love God more than your own life. If you don't do that, he cannot be my disciple, Jesus said. And whoever does not bear his cross an expression of willingness to go through torture, through trial and test and suffering, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower or a skyscraper does not sit down first and count the cost? Do you have the money? Do you have the expertise? Do you have the right equipment and all the rest of it? You know, think of it. The whole thing. Count the cost before you decide to be a Christian. He said in verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake... All that he has to say, my life is not my life anymore, God. I'm giving my life to you and I mean it. And I'm going to do what you say and not try to water it down. I'm giving my life to you. It's not my life anymore. Does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how will it be seasoned? Where to be the salt of the earth? If we keep watering things down and we pray when it's convenient and we tithe when it's convenient and we get excited about the work when it's convenient, we're not the salt of the earth. We're a bunch of Laodiceans or maybe even worse than the Laodiceans. We might not even be converted at all. We may just be floaters or sitters in or whatever. Brethren, think about it. Get off our stool. Get down on our knees and get close to the great God. <clears throat> That's what God is telling us. And as we get closer to the end of this age, and boy, we certainly are with all the things that are happening, and perhaps Dr. Bonnell will cover some of that, prophetic things next time, or if some of us will, we need to be willing to put up or shut up. Get right square in the middle of God's will, and not be fringers, always on the fringe and watering things down. Salt is no good if it's lost its seasoning. It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, the manure pile. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. <clears throat> Jesus Christ got very strong when you think about it. And I'll bet he was shouting those words louder than I am because he had no microphone. You read the Scriptures quite often how Jesus lifted up his voice or he cried out, it says. 
And I know I talked to some of our Jewish scholars. They, they say that's the way they had to do back then. And the indication is that. Yes, they cried out. And their voice may have gotten high and powerful, but that's what they did. No microphone, not mellifluous voices in those days. That's why when you hear the old uh, recordings of Teddy Roosevelt or some of the old politicians once in a while, if you notice their voice is kind of high and booming, and well, they had no microphone. Here's this great big crowd out there, and they had to holler. <laughs> and that's what Jesus did. So we have got to, we are called, brethren, to give our lives to God. To give our lives to God unconditionally, not with conditions and say, well, I'll follow you, but. And I'm going to do what you say, but I'll water this down and I'll change that, but, but, but. No, God doesn't give us the room for all of that. Why did God call you and me now? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And beginning in verse 2, here the Apostle Paul is inspired to directly tell us that. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And when God uses that term judge, he certainly indicates rule, which is, of course, Jesus is coming back to judge the world, to rule the world. That's why we're called. That's our main purpose in being called now, is to help do the work now to help our fellow human beings all we can and to be the few people that are prepared to rule over cities and nations a few years from now. And so, if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He said at the beginning, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? How dare you go down the street to some worldly court? Why don't you come before the true servants of God and have confidence that God is working through His church, that God is working through His ministry? That's what Paul is saying very clearly. There is government in the church, and we better learn that government, practice that government, believe in that government. Yet so many of these other groups don't practice it at all. That was the number one restored truth that Mr. Armstrong restored to the church. And what have they done? Most of them have trashed it. They don't try to follow it at all. They have voting and politics. One church is so embarrassed about it in their literature, they hardly ever use the term voting. They say balloting, balloting. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> balloting, voting. What Mr. Armstrong said, don't do that. And that's what they do continually. Do you not know that the saint that we shall judge angels? That's our calling. We're called to learn God's government and to practice God's government so we'll be fit and prepared more likely to be able to have at least a pattern in our minds to do it later. And as Christ gives us specific directions, of course, as He's our living head in the church and will be the immediate king over the whole earth in tomorrow's world, as spirit beings will respond immediately and get His exact instructions. But we need to learn the principles right now. So don't you know that we shall judge even the angelic hosts? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, some upsets between brethren, do you appoint those? Or why do you appoint, as it should be worded, as a question mark, those who are least esteemed by or from the point of view of the church? Why would you go down to some worldly judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so there's not a wise man among you, not even one who is able to judge between his brethren? See, the whole passage is telling us, learn to judge, learn to carry out government, learn to make wise decisions, because that is exactly why you're called. 
That's why you're here. So, brethren, if you have a whole bunch of people that don't obey the instruction, inspired instruction of the Apostle Paul to assemble yourselves together much more regularly as you see the end coming and to obey God's command, the Sabbath is a holy convocation and they just show up when it's convenient or they float over to this church and that church if they think there's something more exciting over there. How can God possibly trust those kind of people? Well, of course, He can't. They're not willing to humble themselves to say, where is God really working? Where is the full truth being preached more fully than anywhere else? Where is the work of God being done more fully and more powerfully than anywhere else? And where is the government of God being more rightly practiced than anywhere else? And I'd better go there. I don't care where my friends go. I don't care how many summer camps they have. I don't care about their social club atmosphere. Where is Christ working today at the end of the age just before the heavens open and He comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords? That's where I want my family and me to be because that's the church that's most likely to be taken to a place of safety. That's the church that's most likely to have God's special blessing and protection. Will they have trials and troubles before then? Yes, all of God's people will. When all is said and done, at the end of the day, when the chips are down, those people will be blessed. And they will be used much more than the floaters, than those on the fringe of the church, and those who are not square in the middle of the church where Christ is working. I think that's logical, but a lot of people don't think that through. And I hope all of you will, and you'll help your friends to think that through. That are in these other groups or new people coming in, because others will go after them and try to disorient them. Well, we disagree with this. Well, we don't like Mr. Jones' personality, this local elder. Well, too bad about Mr. Jones' personality. Maybe he doesn't have a great personality. Maybe he never won any beauty contest, but he's an elder in the church of God. And if he gets too bad, we'll de-elderize him. You know what I mean. But in the meantime, he's probably preaching the truth and doing the work the best he can. And if you sit around judging him or judging one another all the time, that does not help you to develop the character of Christ and to be a king or priest in the coming government of God at all. So we have to think about that and think about it sincerely and humbly. Again, aren't there more capable people everywhere? You say, well, some of these people don't seem to have much ability. And the church people don't look very exciting and they're not very great. Well, that's right. That is right. When I first came to the church of God, I came from Joplin High School. We had 1,200 students. In Ambassador College, we had 12 students. <laughs> Just 12. <laughs> and we had, you know, I better not name them all, but we had a couple of boys from the farm, and they didn't know very much and didn't know how to dress, and they parted their hair in the middle and looked like a couple of squirrels, in a sense, when I first saw them. <laughs> really did, and I loved them. I gave them to love them very much, but I didn't. I just the way they looked and acted, and they were uncultured in every way. I had another fellow who'd grown up in the Sardis church, and he was kind of uh, trying to imitate Mr. Armstrong in an odd way and didn't have much uh, overall capacity in many ways either. And then we had Dr. Hay, whom I came to love very much, but he was called Herman the Brain or Herman the Book, and he was always in the library, and uh, he was not balanced in that way. He had never had a date in his entire life, and uh, I think he'd been to one dance, which was an ethnic dance. He'd never been to a movie in his entire life, and so he was a wonderful person, though, and I love him to this day. But he'd not had an overall balanced background in the world. 
And we had then another fellow who's a sort of a bachelor farmer from up in the northern Midwest, an older bachelor type odd guy that was not balanced, but he was sincere. And I loved him too and spent time with him. And all these guys I came to love, but they were all odd. Not one of them would have been one of my friends in high school. I had 25 friends and they would not have fit into the group at all. Not one of them would have fit into our gang. <laughs> Too bad. Maybe they, I wouldn't have fit in their gang when they grew up either, so I don't mean to persecute them. But God was not calling the great of the world. I could figure that out. But my uncle said, Rod, he says, this man, meaning Mr. Armstrong, has been used of God and he has put together the Bible, the real understanding of the Bible and the whole purpose of human existence better than any man I've ever known you better listen to what he says. Okay, so I did. And I found out that Mr. that Uncle Paul was right. And Mr. Armstrong did have that understanding. He did have capacity. But many of those around him did not. Remember back in chapter 1 here, 1 Corinthians where we are, chapter 1, verse 26, Paul wrote, You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has not tried to call those people. Some of you come in and you say, well, we wish the church people had more manners and we wish the people had more culture and we wish the church people had more this and they were more smooth and, you know, a lot of them don't know how to act. I know that. I know that. I had to work with the early ones in the baptizing tours over and over, as I've told you. When we would be going through Houston or Dallas, once in a while, we'd been missing meals and hoping we'd get some people of competence occasionally, and we'd go through this nice neighborhood. And we were going through, we'd say, maybe God's got someone here. It never happened. We'd come to an extra wide road, and once we got across that wide boulevard, then the houses got real tiny. We thought, now we're getting warm. <laughs> now we're getting warm. We're getting close to God's people. And then God would call some of those humble people, to be willing to humble themselves and do what God says. One of the happiest young couples I've ever seen, and beautiful looking, were, I think they were Cajuns, had olive skin, way down in southern Louisiana, way down south of where Monica lived, way down south, place called Homa, but way out from Homa, and we went out on board roads because it was so swampy, you had to have boards or your tire tracks would sink. And if you got off the boards, you'd be in trouble. But this young couple lived literally in a kind of a mud hut. They had some tin, but then some dirt. And they had dirt on the floor, but the young woman kept it clean. And they were both a very handsome young couple. And they, there was this love coming out of their eyes for one another and for us. They'd been hearing, they had a little tiny radio and heard Mr. Armstrong. And they were converted and we baptized them. But they were happy. How many changes of clothes did they have? Not very many. How many televisions did they have? Zero. How many cars did they have? One old rickety car and that was it. How many this and that? Virtually nothing. They were extremely happy. You could tell it. They just showed that. So, you know, God has not chosen the great ones, but God has chosen, verse 27, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world. The things people look down on. So, well, they don't have very much and they're not very cultured. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? 
that no flesh should glory in His presence. As the church got bigger and bigger, we had more and more people of the lower middle class, and there are always some of them, but more of them, then finally more people of the middle middle class, and then gradually some people of the upper middle class. But none were the great and mighty and noble. No Churchills, no Eisenhowers, no Einsteins. <laughs> and now we're starting all over. We have fewer people of the really semi-great of the world, but none that are really great in this world's eyes at all. May never. God may call a few toward the end. Because of the time they're scared to death by the events that are going to start unfolding, then more of those people may finally come out. But brethren, as Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. They've got their whole network of important people. They've got their big house, their membership in the country club, their status. They desire to have the praise of men more than the praise of God. This young couple in their mud hut in Louisiana didn't have any country club membership. I can guarantee it. I didn't ask them, but I didn't need to ask them. (laughs) They didn't have any great big network of important people that they were going to disappoint. They were just happy with each other and being having enough to eat and drink and his little mud hut in a very warm part of Louisiana where it never got very cold, I guess. And they had each other. And as they heard Mr. Armstrong, they began to have God. And they were very happy. That no flesh should glory in His presence. God is called the weak of the world. And so we've got to understand that even the weak of the world can do a lot if God is in us and God uses us, but God's going to look on one key thing, and that's what we've got to have. And you can phrase it different ways. One key way to phrase it, that's not my subject today, has been preached on here. I'd like to preach on it again. We could preach on it every month and never cover it the same way. The fear of God. The fear of God, the absolute awe of God, where you genuinely fear God, you deeply, tremendously adore God, worship God, or in awe of God. And you don't want to change anything. You don't want to water anything down. You don't play games with God. That attitude, but that attitude spills on over into these other things. So the big thing, of course, is that we have got to become people of God who are preparing ourselves to be kings and priests and the coming government of God. When I first got in the military, I'm sure Mr. Davis had this same experience. I've heard many other ex-servicemen, Mr. Uh, Selmer Hegbold, the senior Hegbold, and many others. They tell you, you're not fit to give orders unless you learn first to take orders. Were you taught that, Mr. Davis? He says, yes. And that's a basic principle. You're not fit to give orders unless you first learn to take orders. And if you water things down, even things you're taught from the ministry, now if the minister tells you to do something contrary to God, then you shouldn't do it. If it's directly contrary to God, though, but you'd better, then you'd better obey God rather than man. But if it's in how you should observe the Feast of Tabernacles or how you keep the Sabbath, God shows us specifically, for instance, back in Colossians, that is to be determined by the body of Christ, which is the church of God. It's interesting to me how thousands were taught how to keep the Sabbath by Mr. Armstrong, and he's the very one that taught them, directly or indirectly, and yet they come up with different ways of doing it, thinking they're outsmarting him on that. But anyway, that's another matter. Turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus said here in verse 26, speaking in the first person, He who overcomes, brethren, you've got to overcome yourself, the world, the devil, and keeps my works. 
is willing to do what God says when you understand it. Keeps my works until the end. To him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron and so forth. That's why we're called. The overcomers are called to rule in the coming government. Chapter 5. And verse 8, he talks about the prayer of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. Revelation 5, verse 9. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood, Jesus Christ our Savior, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Again, why are we called? We're called to reign on the earth. Over and over and over it says that. Back in Revelation chapter 20, he talks about how people were to be martyred and beheaded for the witness of Jesus Christ. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years in verse 4. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, these martyrs. And verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and, sh- and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. For one thousand years, we know by implication, perhaps another hundred years after that of the great white throne judgment. That's why we're called to prepare for this very job. How can we prepare for this very job? You're not fit to give orders unless you first learn to take orders. How can God give this kind of responsibility as kings and priests over five cities or ten cities or whole nations to those who refuse and will not take orders today, will not go all out for Christ's work, who will not commit, they will just not in their heart really commit to attend church regularly and become teachable and be willing to be corrected and taught and changed and fashioned and molded by Christ, certainly directly through His Spirit, certainly through His Word, but certainly through His ministers. And if the ministers teach them something that they don't understand, they ought to come and say, I don't understand this. I don't want to be disagreeable. I just, you know, I want to do what you say, but I don't understand. And be open about it. Just be like a little child. You want to learn. Not just hide and say, well, I'm going to water this down and I won't do this and that because I think better than you. I'm smarter than you are. So you've got to have that attitude, brethren. How can God give eternal life and glory and power and rulership to people who are stubborn mules and reason around His Word and water things down in so many different areas of their lives? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you would. 1 Timothy now. And I'm turning to chapter 3. The Apostle Paul was talking to the young evangelist here. And he said in verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark, ground. Some translations have it, which is kind of vague. What does that mean, ground? The earth or something? No, the literal meaning is the bulwark. That's the best translation I've found. The bulwark, the protective barrier of the truth. Brethren, Christ has guided His church for 2,000 years. He said, I will raise up my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. He, would never, he never let His church die out 
and he never let it get stamped out, and so on. He's always had a church, and we know he's the living head of the church, as I'll show you in the Scripture in a few moments, and we know that. So what does this talk about? The church has been preserved down through the ages, and God used his true people to preserve the truth. Now, God used the carnal Jews to preserve the Old Testament scriptures, the oracles of God, but they themselves didn't always preserve the truth because they even rejected the Messiah. They rejected the whole plan of God and all kinds of things. He used some of the Greeks to preserve the New Testament scriptures, and it was actually not the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic, but the Greek Church that preserved it most accurately. He used them, but they have not preserved the truth. But down through time, the church has done that, but the church lost a lot of the church of the truth. That is technical points because of the dark ages and all the things that happened. But the truth was in the scriptures and in bits and pieces of history. And who did God use? And you can check this out. I've done it. I'm basing my life partly on that fact. Not mainly. I'm based on the Bible and Christ. But overall, I know and know that I know that God used a certain man in our age more than any other man by far to put together the basic truths of the Bible and the basic truths the church of God had preserved and to add and the things in the Bible that they had not correctly preserved and put it all together far more than any other human being for hundreds of years. That man's name was Herbert W. Armstrong. You say, do you worship him? No. <laughs> I could get real mad at him. He sent me away to England one time. He said, it's better that you just get 6,000 miles away from this other guy. And I thought, well, why did not he send the other guy 6,000 miles? Why does he send me? <laughs> and he sent me into exile and did various things. He would correct me. I always tried to see past the man and see Christ. So if you say, well, you kind of come across hard sometimes or we don't like your personality. Well, I don't like it sometimes either, folks. I've never been a charmer or a comedian, but God calls someone like Mr. Armstrong who came straight at you, and I guess I come straight at you in a certain way and try to tell you the truth, whether it's pleasant or not. And so God is using me for a while. If I'm not fit, he'll raise someone else up and let me go to sleep. And I've had a wonderful life now for nearly 76 years. So don't feel sorry for me, and I'm not feeling sorry for myself. I'm just telling you the truth. So you've got to look past the man to God. But God guided that man. And he put together the overall truth in a marvelous way. He really did. And the longer I live, looking back, I used to get bugged at Mr. Armstrong because for years he kept talking about the beginning of man becoming God once he got on that. And he went on that for two or three years. We got tired of it. Some people got sick of hearing of it. Then he got on to the, uh, the lost century. Well, you know, some books said for 50 years. Well, he made it the lost century. It sounded better. And he kept talking about that. Then he talked about the spirit in man for years, remember? And uh, he wouldn't let that go. And then he started talking about the two trees. And some people got so sick of the two. I've heard some smart remarks. You know, why don't we just cut the true trees down so we could get something else? Or, you know, some smart alecks made smart aleck remarks. Well, he would get on something like a bulldog and he would turn it over and over in his mind till he felt he fully understood it. And then he would actually talk out loud and think out loud in front of the church partly doing that. And those of us who knew him well knew his mistakes, other mistakes I could mention. I don't need to. I'm not trying to put him down. But he'd repeat himself. 
My wife, every now and then, she bugs me because I'll start to tell a story and she'll get up and go in the other room. And I, I know why. She says, well, I've heard that five or six times before. And, uh, you know, well, she's sometimes heard them 10 or 15 times before. I have my set pieces. The ones who wrote about Sir Winston Churchill, they talked about Winston would start talking and it was one of his set pieces. That's the term his uh, uh, personal physician, uh, Lord Moran, wrote about. He had basic stories, you know, he'd tell again and again. And I heard some of Mr. Armstrong's pieces 15 or 20 times where I could repeat it almost word for word. But looking back, I wish I'd listened even more carefully, you know, because he was an unusual man that God was using. He really was, and God did use him. And he caused that to be brought into his church. And it wasn't just one man, it was primarily one man, but frankly, Herman Hay and I and others, and we were some of the main ones, I'm not bragging, we were, that helped him put it together. I wrote much more and preached more about Christian living, but I helped him things in the Epistles of Paul class, many things where he didn't have it technically right. But he had the foundation, the trunk of the tree that he taught me. So the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth, you see, we preserve the truth in the true church of God. And we're not perfect, but we preserved it more than any other church on earth by far. That is, those descended churches from Mr. Armstrong. And we feel the living church of God is doing it even more perfectly, not because I'm better or smarter, but because I've had men with me from the very, very beginning such as Mr. McNair and, and uh, Mr. Ames soon later and Mr. Apartian, who were with Mr. Armstrong way, way back, Mr. Apartian was, and others, to help preserve that basic truth and that basic way of life. None of the other splits from worldwide, none have had the older leading men come with them to the extent we have. There's no comparison when I name all the older men that helped put together and help in doctoral meetings with Mr. Armstrong Preserve the truth, the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the, of the truth. So you should follow the church of God. And if you find the church of God that's doing more of the work and has more of the truth and has the right government of God, which is extremely important to Christ because that's the very thing we're being trained for, then you'd better let the church of God teach you. You brethren here and you brethren around the world, don't be afraid to do that. It's not going to hurt you. It will bless you. Let the church of God teach you. That's a very important principle, brethren. It really is. So, Christ used Mr. Armstrong for decades to put together, with the help of other dedicated men, a basic pattern, a way of life we need to follow. And he taught about the prophecy. Some other groups have watered that down and tried to change it. He taught about the government of God. They tried to change that around and some of these other groups. Many, many other things. We should not change those basic things that God revealed through Him. Yes, we should grow. We modify here and there, and He would tell us to grow, but not to attack the foundation. Then, if we have that attitude, we would not stay home from church just because our favorite preacher is not there, or we got our feelings hurt, or we're just plain lazy, or we're looking for some new truth from some passing minister preaching somewhere else who has some new Greek word he's talking about or whatever. We would not skip out. We would not change churches and go here and there and be floaters. And we would keep the Sabbath and the holy days and keep them the way the church has taught us to do and not try to change it all around. 
And we would not water down tithing and make excuses why we can't tithe and why we can't give the full tithe and how we can withhold this and that. We would try to sincerely let Christ live His life fully in us and think, how can we serve God the most, not how can we serve God the least? And we would not refuse to be fully involved with the church of God and its activities, its thrust, its teaching, and in the work of God, praying for it, supporting it, doing everything we can to help and move forward to reach the world. Very important approach that we should have. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 now, brethren. This is Ephesians now, chapter 1. Paul wrote here in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning verse 19, he's talking about the greatness of God's power, which he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, every authority, every office, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. An awesome position that God has given Jesus Christ. And he put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Somewhere on the earth is a true church. It's a little flock. It's called the church of God. It keeps the true Sabbath. It keeps the true holy days. It keeps all the Ten Commandments as a way of life, not perfectly, but teaches that whole way of life. And it's doing the work of God. It believes in the coming government of God. It's helping prepare the way for that government of God with all its heart. You have to find that church. And once you find it, you better get your whole heart in it and not water things down. You really should. Christ is the living, active head of the church of God. Do you have faith in Christ? I preached on faith a few weeks ago. You've got to somewhere decide, I'm going to commit. I'm going to put my trust in the God of the Bible and in the Christ of the Bible and follow through on that trust. We must respond to Christ. And in that response, brethren, we've got to be willing to take correction too. Many brethren have not been willing to take correction. People are so sweet and smooth and nice, but the, finally when the Bible comes along and corrects them, they don't take that. Or when a minister comes along and corrects them on some personal point, they will often take what he says out of context and twist it to their own advantage, forget parts of the story that would not be to their advantage, and try to tell the story to hurt the minister that corrected them. I've witnessed that for 56 years in the church. I've witnessed that for 53 years in the ministry. It's amazing how people can put a twist on things when they don't get what they want. In Ambassador College, we had a term we called minister shopping. And the young kids, you know, they would try to decide, well, if I want this, I'll go to this minister. This is his, he's nice over here. And if I want that, I'll go to this minister. And he may let me date Joanne, even though maybe I'm bad or Joanne's bad. or You know, whatever it is, he'd try to figure out which minister he could get the answer from that he wanted. Don't do that. And then if the minister, if he goes to just any minister and the minister didn't give him what they want, then they get their feelings hurt because they were not converted. A lot of them just got dunked in the water. It was time to join the club, the club in Ambassador College, and they were never converted. 
Never converted. I look back and I see that. People I baptized were never converted at all. It showed. so obvious. They never did what God said. The first test that came along, bang, we're out of here. We got our feelings hurt. So you have to think about all those things. We must be willing to let Christ rule us through His church. Turn now, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, just, of course, just before the book of Hebrews here. And uh, I'm going to uh, turn to the very first chapter of Titus and beginning in verse, uh, let's begin in verse uh, 7, just to get part of this with the sentence I want here. For a bishop, he says, he's given Titus instructions about ordaining elders or overseers. We call them elders, but the term overseer or bishop was used interchangeably with elder in the New Testament. An elder or bishop must be blameless. That does not mean perfect. The Greek word here, all authorities of knowledge, means above reproach. In other words, he's not perfect, obviously, but he's not having any big, obvious, open sins. He must be above reproach as a steward of God, not self-willed. An elder must not be self-willed. I want what I want. When I don't get it, I'm out of here. Now, we had some evangelists in the church in the past who were just self-willed. and Very obviously so. I've told you the story about one man, very capable, smarter than me and bigger and better looking and everything else. Very successful in the past. But because of his sort of rebellious attitude, he was taken down from a big corner office in the fourth floor and given a corner office, which is a very nice office, on the third floor and given a smaller responsibility, but still a fair responsibility. His salary was not cut. He still lived in his great, big, beautiful college home. And after a few weeks, realizing he wasn't right at the top, he said, I can't take this anymore. Oh, really? Did we hang him up by his thumbs? No. (laughs) We, I wasn't part of it at all, by the way. Mr. Armstrong was part of it. But you see what I mean. His his, uh, self-image... People say, you've got to have pride and you've got to have self-image. No, your image of yourself should be what? My image of myself should be what? I am a bond slave of Jesus of Nazareth who bought and paid for me. I often try to think of it in three different ways. I think I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ, you see. I'm also a begotten son of God. I can look on God as my father and also as a minister. I am an ambassador, and in a larger sense, all of us are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So all those things fit in. But certainly we have to recognize that we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ who bought us and paid for us, and we belong to Him, and in Him we live and move and have our being. So a minister must not be self-willed. Some just want what they want, and they showed it. A lot of just flipped right out when they didn't get what they wanted. Not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, nor greedy for money, but hospitable. Now, a minister can't entertain all the time, of course, and so on, but a minister should be basically trying to have others over as best he can, and his wife's health can bear it, and so on. A lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, not flying into rages, and so on, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. That's the key phrase that I want you to remember in this sermon. 
an elder of Christ and, frankly, a leader in tomorrow's world because all of us need to be spiritual elders in our character if we're going to be kings. An elder has got to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Not saying, well, I'm going to change this here and I'm going to change that there. When we ordain a man out in, you know, Paducah, Kentucky or Medford, Oregon or somewhere else, do we want him to suddenly start changing everything around? You say, well, are you squelching his initiative? No. If he has an idea that's a good idea, we ask him to go to his regional pastor and check it out. And maybe it's a good idea. And then that man can send it on here. And if the man won't send it on here and the man still thinks it's a good idea, he could send it on here as well. And Mr. Ames and uh, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Winnell and I and others of our leaders will look over it with an open mind and try to look into it if it's something important. But uh, that doesn't mean we look at every manuscript. We have manuscripts coming from oddballs, and they start right out scribbling about Heather, Elijah, and their God. I don't read all that stuff. I usually say, Monica, if this is not worth you look at her. I want her eyes to get worn out, not mine. <laughs> throw it in the ash can. Or I'll just throw it in the ash can first if it's too bad. Or we'll send it down to my friend, Mr. Amon. He gets so many of these weird things. That's why his hair is falling out. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? That's the crazy things people send in. We can't read their 59-page treatise about nothing. They go on and on and on. But if there's something worthwhile that people can show us, certainly some elder in our own church or some leader that has good fruits, we want to look at it, consider it with an open mind. So we're not squelching it. But until that's done, an elder should teach the Word as he has been taught that he may be able to able by sound doctrine. An elder needs to be a balanced person and humble and be willing to be taught about how to keep the Sabbath, how to count chronology, how to guide the church in this way and that, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. You see, he's got to be able to do it by sound doctrine, not by his own opinions and ideas apart from what the church is taught, not because we claim we're infallible, but because Christ is the living head of the church, and overall He has guided the church, and overall, brethren, as some of you know, some of you newer ones don't know. But I haven't just sat in a few hundred hours of doctrinal meetings and our global living work. I have sat in maybe hundreds or thousands of hours of doctrinal meetings under Mr. Armstrong's direction with many other ministers for a period of about, whatever it was, 40 years. Over and over and over. Is all that to be thrown in the ash can? No. We did get most of it straight. By far most of it straight. And we build on that. And as older brethren in the church like Mr. Pyle and Mrs. Pyle, I don't know if they're here today, but anyway, uh, are you here, Mr. Pyle? I guess they're not here today. But anyway, they, they both were in the offices and worldwide and Mrs. Pyle is our HR director, our human resources, and she's worked in that area for maybe a quarter of a century going way back into worldwide. And we carried the same pattern of how to do this and that over. You say, are you following Mr. Dukats? No. Mr. Dukats didn't invent all that. Did Mr. Armstrong invent all that? No, not really. He wasn't a technical man in that way. He didn't have time. It was developed by converted people over a period of decades. And gradually, if it didn't work, it got straightened out. So it's a pretty good pattern. We follow that pattern. You know what I mean in the way we administer uh, various things in the work, the same way in doctrine. 
We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Christ has had a church. Christ is the living head of that church. He's guided that church. He's had faithful people, and some have left since, but while they were there, God's Spirit was guiding them, using them, and so on. And many of them did a very good job while they were there, and so on. Some have died faithfully. Many have. So we want to follow that principle, to teach the truth as we have been taught. And we'd better be very careful if we try to change it around. Now let's go to another thing involving the same principle, back to the book of Proverbs, if you would, brethren. The book of Proverbs, and I'm going to begin to read here in chapter 12. Here is the mind of God. The Bible is the revelation of the way God thinks. And God gives us this very basic wisdom for especially young men, but it applies to everybody because it's put in the Bible. I read the book of Proverbs for the last few years as much as any other book because now that I've had the human leadership, I realize I've got to have wisdom. And I'm praying every day for wisdom specifically. And I read the book of Proverbs through perhaps every two or three months, four or five times a year, maybe more often, to try to think of wisdom and how to make right decisions, plus other books as well. Of course, many other books in the Bible Chapter 12, verse 1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. You see, if you love instruction, some people, they think they know everything and they don't want to be taught anything. But he who hates reproof is stupid. I'm not saying you're stupid. That's what the Bible says. If you hate reproof, no one's going to correct me. You have this attitude. Don't step on me. That's stupid. God says, your creator says, notice in verse 15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. I think I know this. Well, don't be too cocksure if your opinion is against what the church of God has taught and faithful men have tried to work out for decades. How come you could set yourself up as a one-man judge and jury and overthrow all that? That's wrong. But he who heeds counsel is wise. Listen to counsel. Listen to what the ministry and the human leadership under Christ is trying to teach you. We've got to learn to take correction. We've got to learn to be responsive to Christ through His church. Turn to chapter 13, verse 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer, oh, well, he can't teach me anything. I've heard this before. This means nothing, you know, people say. A scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Don't have that attitude. Verse 20. Verse 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Often in Ambassador College, we found that certain young men would hang around with other young men. Obviously, birds of a feather flock together, and the smart alecks would hang around with other smart alecks. Well, yeah, but. And they were the yeah, well, butters, and they were over here always judging and smirking and laughing and, and getting in trouble. But the ones who had good sense would try to think who are dedicated young men and they would find out or the young, young women would often try to find out or dedicate those type, or date those type of men. He who walks with wise, you see, thoughtful, dedicated men and women will be wise. That will rub off on you. But the companion of fools will be destroyed. If you spend too much time with people who are always sounding off and putting down the work and putting down the ministry and blah, 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 I got a raw deal. Oh, I did too. Let's commiserate together. Let's have fun talking it up, exaggerating, telling bits and pieces of our part of the story and trying to put down the ministry and put down God. That's wrong. 
If you enter into God's kingdom with that, you're going to be a doorkeeper. You're not going to be very high positioned if you enter in at all. And if you have too much of that, you'll drop out of the church in the meantime, of course, and not even be there. Or you'll drop out or be weak until the tribulation comes, and then God will grab you with the scruff of the neck and shake you till He wakes you up, and then hopefully you repent at that time. And we hope all of us will learn lessons. God has had to take me with the scruff of the neck many, many times and wake me up. And He will you too if He loves you. And God rebukes and chastens every son He loves. Chapter 15, Proverbs 15, verse 31. The ear that hears the reproof, you see, to be reproved, corrected. The ear that hears it, you see, that really listens to it and heeds it. The reproof of life will abide among the wise. He who disdains, smart aleck attitude, sarcastic, well, I don't need to listen to all that stuff. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds reproof gets understanding. The fear of the ever-living one, this deep awe of the great God, realizing God is alive. He's the head of the church. He's guiding his ministry. He's here. I can't play games with him. You've got to think of your, in your own mind. The fear of the eternal is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. That deep, profound humility where you're teachable and you're wanting God to correct you. Correct me, O God, for I don't know my way. Show me what I should do. Clean me up and scrub me out. I mean it, Father. Do it. If you have to shake me up, if you have to hurt me, if you have to deal with me, clean me up. I need to be cleaned up. Pray to God that way. And God will hear your prayer and help you. But you've got to be willing to have that attitude and mean that attitude and follow through. Then God can fashion and mold you and make you like Jesus Christ more and more. Then you're fit to be a king or a priest and to give orders and to be under Christ and over a whole city or a whole nation and have glory and power, you see, in a coming government of God and have the wisdom you ought to have to make the right decisions, not based on your human vanity, not based on your quick decisions or your emotional reaction, but based on what God says and based on the principles of the Bible because you've drunk into that and fed upon it and made it part of yourself. Let's turn now to 1 Samuel, if you would. 1 Samuel now, brethren, and verse uh, or chapter 15. I won't read you all of this because most of you are familiar with the story, but in 1 Samuel 15, verse 1, God sent Samuel to destroy Amalek. He said, Now therefore hear the words of the Lord. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, verse 2, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing, child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Well, where was the Ladies' Aid Society? <laughs> you think about it. If there had been the Ladies' Aid Society type women or womanish type, what did uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, the uh, girl, girl women, or what did he call Girly women, I guess. Girly men. <laughs> if there had been a bunch of girly men there, they would say, well, we might, have, we might be hurting someone. This might not be fair. Might not be fair? Of course, we're not in that era today. I understand that. I'm just saying back then it was fair. It was right. And it came directly from the Creator through His servant. And Samuel or Saul had every reason to know that. Every reason to know that. This came from God, the Lord and giver of life. 
Wipe out these people. They're utterly perverted. And they've been perverted ever since, frankly. And if they'd been wiped out back then, like God said, we might be spared infinite numbers of dead American soldiers right now in various parts of the Middle East. And I'm not kidding. I won't go into that. They did not do what God said. So Saul went and attacked. You say, well, he did obey God. Well, here's the point, brethren. You've got to do what God says, and you've got to do it all the way. Don't do it part way and water this down and change this around. Be willing to do what God says totally to the best of your ability. Don't make excuses. Well, I'll change this, and I'm smarter than God over in this part of the instruction, and I'm more merciful than God over in this part of it. No, you're not. No, you're not. So he went and attacked Amalek, verse 7. But, verse 9, Saul spared and the people spared Agag, the king, you see, and the best of the sheep, oxen, and so on. And so Samuel came in verse 17 said, So when you were little in your own eyes, Saul, you big, great, big oaf, you know, and he was huge. You had humility a few years ago, Saul. Were you not made head of the tribes of Israel, and did not the Eternal anoint you king? And now the Eternal sent you on a mission to destroy the Amalekites. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil? And so what did Saul say? I'm sorry, I repent, I'm totally wrong, I'll quit this totally. No, he began to make excuses. Boy, people like to make excuses. Well, I have obeyed the Lord and and gone on the mission and and brought back Agag the king. Well, I, I made a little exception there. I thought that would be good. And I better destroyed the Amalekites, but, see, he didn't get off his butts, but the people took the plunder. He tried to blame it now on the people. What did Adam do? The woman. Oh, the woman did this. He didn't want to take the, the, uh, the blame. And uh, you know the old story. Adam blamed the woman, and the woman tried to blame the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. So <laughs> the snake took the blame. <laughs> but the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen and so forth, to sacrifice to God. Oh, that's our excuse. We were going to sacrifice. That makes it all right. We had a good motive in mind to change around what God said. No, you don't have a good reason to change around what God says. Please get that in your mind, brethren, all of you brethren around the world. Don't change around what God said. Then Samuel said, speaking for God, and God's put it in the Word of God for us, has the ever-living one as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, doing what God says? That's the whole key thing, brethren. Just do what God says all the way. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness, watering it down, changing it around. Getting your feelings hurt about nothing and making excuses and saying that made it all right because the instruction I got or the correction I got was not done in a perfect way. Well, nothing has ever been done in a perfect way through human beings. So get off of it. Just be willing to do what God says, you see, in that way. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. And brethren, here is the example in God's word right here preserved for us for thousands of years. The very first king of Israel was rejected because of what? 
he was not willing to fully do what God said. He did it partly. He made good excuses about it. He had all his reasonings. Oh, well, yes, but. But he did not do what God said. Are you going to be a king or a priest in the kingdom of God in a few years? You'd better learn to do what God says. Don't forget that. That's the key. That's the kind of thing. You say, we're not smart, we're not brilliant, we're small. But if we learn to do what God says in this life and mean it and follow through on it, then God can trust us out on Alpha Centauri or Pluto or Saturn or other parts of the universe later on. He knows that we will carry out His instruction. We will not stab Him in the back. We will do what God says. That's a tremendously important key to understand and all the ramifications of it, which I cannot cover today. But that's the key. In Acts 13, turn with me then, if you would, to Acts chapter 13 in your New Testament. Saul would not do what God said fully. He watered it down. He made excuses. And so, it shows here, that afterward they had judges, and in verse 21, after the judges of Israel, Israel asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, why? Because he would not do what God said. When he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he gave this testimony. Let's listen very carefully to this testimony. And said... I have found Jesse, the son of David, I mean David, the son of Jesse, excuse me, a man after my own heart who will do what I say. You see, in effect, who will do all, all my will. I'll read it again. He said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Why? Who will do all my will. He will not water it down. He will not change it around. He will not make excuses. You say, well, he made that one horrible mistake with Bathsheba. Yeah, he did. That's the only one. God said, only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite did David ever turn aside from anything I commanded him. And then you read Psalm 51. And David said, I'm guilty. I'm only guilty. Before you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You're fit to judge. I'm worth nothing. I'm worth death, O God. Forgive me. Clean me up. Scrub me out with strong hyssop. He didn't try to make any excuses whatsoever in that psalm of repentance. No excuses. No watering down. He just acknowledged he made one great big whopper of a mistake. But he then he had one great big whopper of sincere, heartfelt repentance. And God forgave him. And he never, ever did anything like that again. Period. So we want to understand that. A man after my own heart who will do all my will. So are you a man or woman who is fit to be a king or a priest? That's why you're called. A person in God's church who will do all God's will and not water it down and say, well, it's better in our age that we have voting and politics. It fits in better. Or it's better in our age we have all these other things so we can water down tithing. Or it's better that we water this down or we can water that down or we can change this around. 
Think about it. No excuses. Are you a man or woman with no excuses? Are you a man or woman with no watering down? No turning aside? These are the kind of people the great God wants as kings and priests in his coming kingdom to rule his people throughout the next 1,000 years to bring peace over the earth, to teach the laws of God, the ways of God, the statutes of God as they're magnified because he studied them, he believes them, he acts on them, he lives that way of life and he's corrected, he takes it, he grows in it and he cries out to God to clean him up and scrub him out and make him better and help him to be ever more perfectly a Christian, ever more perfectly a humble, humble follower of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the big difference between good people. Mother Teresa does good things, sure. My grandma did good things and helped the drunks out at the edge of town. All those things, but she didn't yet understand. God did not call her to understand she needed to keep God's laws. She needed to keep the Sabbath. She needed to do all these things. All these good people that pray to these idols. All these Protestants, you tell them to do this. No, I'm sorry, it's all done away. They won't do that. Is it altogether their fault? No, God hasn't called them yet. But the point is, brethren, God has called most of you. God has called most of you now. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We are held responsible. We have got to learn to let Christ live fully in us. And we've got to learn to be a man or woman after God's own heart and do what God says and do all his will so God can trust us and rely upon us now and forever, to be in His church, to be in His work, to be in His everlasting kingdom. That's why we are called today.